this semester up to December, we're going to go ahead and continue in the book of Genesis. In December, we'll talk about Christmas as is tradition. And then in the new year, we're hoping to dive into the book of Ephesians. I think that's where we're going. Ephesians talks about the church, what the church is, not only on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. What is the church? And so we're hoping to do that in January, Lord willing, with the book of Ephesians. But today we're finishing up, as I said, this series created, discovering what we are made for. And we have walked through five of life's biggest questions, questions that we are created to ask, questions that our hearts long to know the answers to. The first week we asked, where did I come from? And God tells us in his word that we came from him, that God himself created us. He created everything that is seen. And he created it from nothing by the power of his word. The second week we asked the question, do I have value? And God says, yes, you have value because I created you very good in his image. The third week, what is my purpose? And we saw that our purpose is to reflect the image of God for the glory of God. And that even in our sinful state, Christ is redeeming onto us the image of God, that we might share it with the world. And then week four, five, and six, we looked at the question, what went wrong? And we looked at the story of the fall, where God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where Satan deceived them and said, God doesn't really know what's best for you. And then Adam and Eve ate and rebelled against God. The guilt of the fall and how Adam and Eve and often us, we try to hide our guilt. We try to flee from God in the midst of our guilt. And we even try to shift our guilt. And then finally, last week, we looked at the curse of the fall. The curses that God pronounces on Satan, on the woman, and on the man. And we end this week with the question, is there hope? Is there any hope in the midst of a fallen, broken, difficult world. Jason and I went on the street. Many of you have seen the video. But we went on the street and asked people these questions. And here's what they responded when we asked, is there hope? Is there hope? If you would open up to Genesis chapter 3. And... uh, We're going to read, it's on page 3 in the Red Bible, if you have the Red Bible. We're going to actually read verse 14 and 15, and then we'll skip to verse 20 and read through 4.1. And uh, so we're skipping verses 16 through 19, but we read those and talked about those last week. And so read along with me. Genesis chapter 3, we'll start in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Skip down to verse 20 with me. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we open up your word, we know that it is true, it is right, it is good, it is from your lips. And not a single verse in all the scripture is wasted. All of it is important for our growth and grace, for our enjoyment of you. And I pray today that we would understand the hope that is woven into the story of man's destruction and to the fall of mankind. Help us to see the great and glorious hope we have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So imagine the picture. Adam and Eve are walking in the garden with God. They're enjoying him. They're delighting in him. He's a friend. He's not a distant figure. There's someone that is very present, very real to him. And then Satan comes along to deceive Adam and Eve and I think James Montgomery Boyce put it well when he said, Satan tells him, come away with me and enjoy sin's pleasure. Nothing will come out of it. No harm will be done. And they eat the forbidden fruit and destruction of biblical proportions comes upon the earth. And the curses of God. And God comes to them and they hide from God and God exposes their guilt. And he pronounces the curse Upon them, the curses upon them for eating of the forbidden fruit. And then the Trinity has this discussion. We're kind of taken up to heaven and we see into what the Trinity is talking about. And what they say is they say, We must kick man out of the garden. We cannot let him remain here because they are fallen. They are tainted. They are filled with sin now. And we don't want them to eat from the tree of life. We don't want them to live forever. Verse 24 talks about this. If you would keep your Bibles open, we'll be looking back at the text often. It says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and flaming swords that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's interesting here, he sends these cherubim down to guard the garden. And one of the reasons why this is very fascinating is that throughout Scripture, whenever you see the cherubim present, what they represent is the glory and the presence of God. They're, for example, they're present on the Ark of the Covenant. And between them is the mercy seat where the presence and the glory of, the God, of God comes. And so they're not only guarding Adam and Eve from the tree of life, but they're guarding Adam and Eve from walking with God. This is what sin does to all of us. It barricades us from God. It puts up this wall in which God cannot come to us because of our sin, because of our guilt, because of our shame, because he is holy and perfect. And so they're driven out east of Eden into a life of pain and toil and death. And so we ask a question, is there any hope? East of Eden, where we now live, is there any hope? As we see around us death 
in misery and suffering, divorce, parents taking off, kids dying at a young age. Is there any hope east of Eden? And what is amazing as we look through this story, I don't know about you, but as I look at Genesis chapter 3, there's only one title for the whole chapter. And the title I see is The Fall. But woven throughout the story of the fall, God gives a promise of great hope that God will be victorious over Satan and God will be victorious over sin. And those are the areas that we're going to look at today. And so first, let's look at God's promised victory over Satan. If you remember, God comes into the garden. He's pronouncing the curses on Satan. He's telling Satan what's going to happen because of the way that he has deceived Adam and Eve, and you can imagine Adam and Eve shuddering in fear because they know that God had said if they eaten of the forbidden fruit that they would surely die. And yet before God even comes to them, before God even pronounces the curses upon them, God gives them a glimmer of hope. In verse 15, something kind of peculiar happens. A plural becomes a singular. And a struggle becomes a victory. Let's look at that. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. And so you see this plurality, right? That, that the offspring of Satan, all of his cohorts, are battling against all of humanity. But it goes on and it changes. And this is extremely important. But it changes from a plural to a singular. You see it? It says, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Why does it turn to a singular person? Why isn't that just all of humanity? Unexpectedly, we see God giving this hope that there will be a single man that will claim victory over Satan. And so this plural becomes a singular, but also this struggle between man and woman, this enmity between man and woman and Satan will become a final victory. It will become an absolute. You know, as you look at this passage, um, different versions translate verse 15 differently. Some translate uh, the word bruise. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's the word shof, but sometimes they, they translate it bruise and bruise, okay? That he will bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. Some translate it he will, bruise your, he will bruise your heel, you will crush his head. What's happening is that the uh, ESV, which translated bruise and bruise, is saying this is the same word. But the NIV and other translations are saying that the significance of the blow is far different. That if you bruise someone's heel, it is far different than bruising their head. Because this word not only means bruise, it can also mean crush. And I don't know about you, but I would so much rather my heel to be crushed than my head. And so I think rightly they translated that God will crush Satan's head, that he will crush Satan's head. So in the midst of pronouncing these curses, God makes a promise to man, a promise of hope that he will destroy Satan. Who is that he in Genesis 3.15? Well, Colossians 2 lays this out for us. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses, talking to us like Adam and Eve, dead in our sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. If you remember, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. They knew that the penalty was death, and they had what he calls here a record of debt held out against them. And the wages of that sin was death. I don't know about you, but I have done a lot more than just eating the forbidden fruit. All of us are deserving of having this record flashed in front of us and being destroyed. It goes on. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. God disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan and all his co-laborers, and put them into open shame, triumphing, triumphing over them in him. God says that in him we will triumph over Satan. So there's a lot of hymns and he's. Who is this hymn in Colossians 2.13 that will have triumph over Satan? It's the same that is the he in Genesis 3.15. And we know from the rest of Scripture that the one who went to the cross, the one who claimed victory over Satan was God's own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus triumphed over Satan by letting Satan bruise his heel. There's a lot of irony in this story, but Satan was there when God pronounced his curse upon Satan, when God pronounced his hope of one that would come and crush his head. And Satan comes and he bruises the heel of Jesus. Throughout Jesus' life, if you remember, Satan, uh, Satan harasses Jesus. He sends him uh, into the wilderness and tempts him. He also, of course, turned all the religious leaders against Jesus to hate him, to mock him. And then finally, the worst of all, was the cross in which Christ suffered tremendous agony and tremendous pain through the horrific crucifixion. But this horror was only a bruise compared to what would happen to Satan. Satan thought that he had won. I can imagine after the cross, Satan with his friends, I guess you call And they're rejoicing because they had killed the Son of God. And for three days, they're living it up. They're excited that they had accomplished their plan, that they were victorious in killing the Son of God, Jesus. And then three days later, there's a gotcha moment. There's an uh uh-oh. As Christ raises from the dead, victorious over Satan, victorious over death. You know, when I think of this, it's funny. It makes me think of the Wiley Coyote. Um, the Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. Some of you may know what that is. But the Wiley Coyote has all these schemes, all these plans to catch and to defeat the Roadrunner. And uh, he'll do certain things. I'll just pick out one. Like he'll, he'll, uh, he'll sit behind a rock. And I think all of them are kind of like this. But he'll sit behind a rock and the Roadrunner will come by and he'll have like powered jets on his roller skates, right? And he'll light a match and he'll light it and he'll, he'll take off after the roadrunner and you'll see him getting closer and closer and closer to the roadrunner in the scene. And then as he's just about to seize victory, the roadrunner stops. And the wily coyote goes over the cliff, right? 
Happens every time. I don't know why it doesn't get old as a kid, but happens every time. And so the wily coyote goes over the cliff, and then you hear this, right? Three days after the cross, for Satan, there was this, his own schemes. His own bruising of the heel of Christ was the very thing that crushed his head. God, did, God knew that he was using Satan as a tool to bring forth his will, that he would kill his own son on the cross, and that he would reign victorious over Satan. Theologian, a theologian named Gerstner calls Satan the greatest blockhead the world has ever known. He was there when the curse was pronounced. He was there when the promise was given. And yet he fell right into God's hands. And yet the victory, while it is certain at the cross, it is not complete. Romans 16.20 puts it this way. It says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And while we see Christ's victory over Satan in part now, we will experience it in full when Christ returns. And this is mentioned throughout the Bible and specifically in the book of Revelations. Revelations 20.10 talks about this certain future victory where victory will be complete. And it says this, And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they were, will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever. The victory will be complete. It's certain, but it will be complete when Christ returns. And so we do have hope that God, because God promises victory over Satan. We also have a hope because God promises victory over sin. Look at verse 21 with me, if you would. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, you're probably reading this verse thinking, boy, that's kind of random. Uh, God changed their outfit. Cool. But there's not a wasted verse in all of Scripture. And this verse is extremely important, much more than our first glance would give. If you remember, Adam and Eve had put together these fig leaves to cover them. And in the midst of kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, for some reason, God says, wait, 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 I got to change their clothes. Why would he do this? That's so strange. Why would he say, wait? Was it because their fig leaves didn't match their eyes? Was it because it was cold outside and like a good mom or dad, he's like, here, let me give you a coat to wear. Why was it that God insisted on changing the fig leaves for garments of skin? Why did God bring the first death into the world to cover Adam and Eve? To understand this, we have to remind ourselves of Genesis 2.17 when God says, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. There is a consequence and a wage for sin. And the wages of sin, God says, is death. And God is a man of his word. He has to bring forth death as a sacrifice, as a sacrifice of atonement for sin. And so he starts what we see as the sacrificial system in the Old Testament right here in Genesis chapter 3.21 by saying, if you are not going to die, someone or something who has no blame that is innocent will have to die in your place. 
Hebrews 9.22 sheds a lot of light on this. It says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So you see, it was necessary that an innocent animal would die in order that Adam and Eve, the guilty, would live. The word atonement, which we see here, is a very interesting word. And as I kind of researched it and looked at it this week, there are some things that I didn't know that were very, very fascinating to me. The word atonement also means to appease or to cover. And so looking at those two words, appease and cover, we see that God's wrath, his justice, is appeased in killing the animal. But we also see this strange word, cover. And if you remember, Adam and Eve covered their sin. They covered their shame with the fig leaves. But God says, that is not enough. You cannot cover your sin. You cannot cover your shame. I have to do it. And I will cover your sin and I will cover your shame with a sacrifice that I provide. God provides the sacrifice. God had to make the covering. God had to provide the atonement for their sin, the payment, the covering for their sin. God killed an innocent animal to cover up the guilt of Adam and Eve. You know, I, um, okay, confession time. I have totaled two cars in my life. Who wants to drive with me? Um, I've totaled two cars in my life. Once my mom was with me, we were in Chicago and uh, we were driving and this 15 passenger van kind of came into the side of us. The second time Trish and I were driving up to Wisconsin, we lived in Missouri and she was playing Pac-Man on the computer and I decided to see how she was doing. And uh, when I got back on the road, it was too icy and we went into snowbank, hit a tree, car was totaled. In each of those cases... Somebody had to absorb the cost. And thankfully for me, both times it was the insurance company. But somebody had to absorb the cost for that mistake. Someone had to atone for it. Christ absorbs the penalty of our sin for all who trust in him. Romans 3.23 puts it like this, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Again, it says all, everyone, no one is exempt from this. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's standard. And in verse 24, and are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And in verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so you see, Jesus is a sacrificial atonement that all sacrificial atonements in the Old Testament pointed to. You see, in the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice animals over and over and over and over and over again because they would sin over and over and over and over again. Yet when God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice, it is once and for all, for all our sins, past, present, and future. It is a payment, an atonement for our sins. That's why we no longer sacrifice animals in the church today. Maybe we draw more people, but we don't need to. God sent his innocent one, Jesus, to die for you. And in verse 26, it talks about that God fulfills his justice. He upholds his justice. His 
his declaration that sin deserves death, he upholds it on the shoulders of Christ. But it says God is not only just, God is also the justifier. This is cool. God not only carries out his justice, God is also the justifier, which means that God provides the atonement. God not only provides the atonement, God is the atonement. God is the atonement in his son, Jesus Christ. He provides himself as a sacrifice that he could die once and for all, for all eternity, that he could cover all who trust in Jesus Christ, all who have faith in Jesus, as verse 26 says. And he does this not to clothe us in garments of animal skins. He does this to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. That when God looks at you, he is pleased and he is happy and he is delighted because when he looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees his own son, Jesus Christ, who was an atonement for us. And so you see, even woven throughout this story of tragedy, this story of fall, this story of misery, there is great hope. Hope that God promises to have victory over Satan, and have victory over sin and its consequences. And so how would we respond to a God who makes such amazing promises and would even give up his own son? And we already talked a little bit in Romans 3. It is by faith. It is by believing, by trusting in Christ for our salvation. In the midst of the story of the fall, the guilt of the fall and the curse of the fall, we see God promise victory. But we also see an amazing response of faith by Adam and by Eve. Some little interesting Bible trivia, if you're a nerd like me and you like Bible trivia. Can you guess how many times the name Eve is used in the Old Testament? You don't have to answer, but how how much would you think? You know, we're so familiar with the name Eve. They use it to sell cars and sell whatever, right? Adam and Eve. Everybody knows the name Adam and Eve. But the name Eve is actually only used twice in the whole Old Testament. And both times right here in this passage. And the first time the name Eve is given, it is given as a sign of faith by Adam. And the second time we see the name Eve, it is a fulfillment of faith, a fulfillment of a promise. Look with me in Genesis 3.20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. All right? This is before she had conceived Cain. This is before she had conceived their oldest son. And so how did Adam not know that they would die? How did Adam know that she would not be barren? How would Adam's never seen a baby born? How would he know that she would be the mother of everyone that would come after? It's because of the promise here in Genesis 3:15 when he says, "I will put enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring. He promises an offspring. And Adam claims that promise by faith and calls his wife Eve, the mother of all living, saying, I know that God's promise will come true, and so I can name it. I can name her today, the mother of all living, because God had promised. And then we see the second time Eve comes about, and it's actually a fulfillment of faith. In one. look with me. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Do you see what happened? God's promise came true. God's promise of children came true. And why this is so important is because we see that God 
always delivers on his promises. And so when God promises that he will triumph over Satan, that he will triumph over our sin, we know that his promises are true for all who trust in Jesus Christ. And so is there hope east of Eden? Is there hope in a world where there is brokenness, there is misery, there is suffering? We looked at that video, a life story of a guy named Horatio Spafford. And in case you missed the details, I'll just go over it quickly. In 1871, Horatio lost his only son, who died. A few months later, Horatio lost all his investments, all his uh, property investments in the Chicago fire, and so was broke. Two years later, in sending his family over to Europe, the ship was hit by another ship, and it sank, and all of his daughters died. And so here's Horatio. He has lost his son. He has lost all his money. And he's lost all his daughters. And as Horatio sails over the area where his four daughters drowned, he pens the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And so I just want to briefly read through it, and we'll end with this. But see the hope that he has in the midst of, of a fallen world, the hope he has east of Eden. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, you can imagine him writing this when he's out at sea, right? Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so so he's honest. He says, life is hard, tragedy happens, but it is still well with my soul. And then he goes on to talk about the firm hope that he has in the promises of God in conquering Satan and in conquering sin. He says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul as our atonement. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And then he finalizes it by proclaiming not only the assurance of the victory at the cross, but the fulfillment of the victory when Christ returns. And he says, And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. How is your soul? Do you have hope? We have walked through this journey together, talking about what we are created for. And in the midst of it, we learn how good God is. We learn the fall of man. But then we also hear this amazing proclamation in the midst of the curses, in the midst of the fall, in which God is saying, I will not abandon you. I will not forsake you. I have given you a hope. I've given a certain victory for all who trust in Jesus Christ. Do you trust in Christ today? Do you? Is your heart at peace with God? Do you know that you will be with Christ forever, for all eternity? There is a great hope east of Eden because God promises us victory in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we, um, we do praise you that even in the midst of pronouncing the curses in the midst of 
justice and punishment. You have not abandoned man, but you have pronounced a great hope that through Jesus Christ, in Christ alone, that you will deliver us, that you will atone for our sins, that you will conquer sin, that you will conquer Satan. This is a great joy and a great hope that we have in a world that is east of Eden. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would seal this joy to our heart, that we would relish and worship you because of it. In Christ's name, amen.